next week. Um, was someone's hand up a second ago? No. Okay. Um, there's a lot to do. I, I guess I should tell you what else we should, you should read for next week, because next week is you'll be incredibly sad to know our last week on Dryden. Isn't that sad? Um, it's all because you didn't want to do the hind and the panther. Um, so here's here's uh, what you should read for next week. I assume you're you're kind of caught up, or totally caught up. Um, so this is not only for Tuesday, but for the entire week. Um, the the song for Saint Cecilia's Day, which in the Penguin is starts on page two ninety two. Um, and also the lines on Milton on page 295, so that would be pages 292 to 295. Then the translations from Virgil, um, which is from 359 to 390. Um, the poem called Alexander's Feast, which is 391 to 396. The preface to fables, so that's prose, and Dryden's probably single most important piece of prose. Um, which it starts on page 398 and it goes to 420. Um, and then his translation of book one of Homer's Iliad, which is 436 to 457. Um, so that's a lot, but that's for a week. And it's not that much. Um, but, um, but it's a good assignment. Um, I hope you like the reading for today, which was, um, also shows a lot more of... Um, Dryden's variety. What I wanted us to do, I, I think there's a lot to do today, and I would really like to um, get to the Lucretius and the Horace translations. Um, and uh, as I say, we probably won't do the um, highest memory of Van Killigrew today, but we should try to talk about the Lucretius and Horace translations. But I want to finish up finally talking about um, both Absalom and Achitophel and Religio Laici. Um, I, I hope that, that what's sort of coming out now about Dryden is that there is um, a consistency in what he does and in his attitude um, towards the world, towards life, towards politics, towards poetry, towards society, towards people. Um, but a consistency which is... Which, um, is on so broad a range that he's actually capable of a remarkable number of different perspectives and of giving justice, doing justice to a remarkable number of different perspectives. Um, that is uh, one of the things that Johnson complains about, and of course you have, you're now almost done with Dryden's life, I mean Johnson's life of Dryden. Um, one of the things that Johnson complains about is what he probably fairly, you know, they're, they're, um, it may be partial, but it's probably fair, is um, the extent to which Dryden was a trimmer, um, that is, saw which way political winds were blowing. Um, but the other way of putting that is to say that Dryden was capable of um, doing the kind of, embracing the positions that he embraced and changing his views to the extent that he changed them because of the capaciousness of his understanding and of his um, attitudes towards others. One place I think you can see that is in the translations of Lucretius, which are um, great and which are mainly Lucretius, but Dryden's um, liking Lucretius and his presentation of Lucretius 
um, who is very, very different from the Dryden of Religio Laici. Nevertheless, Dryden really liked him, um, was at one point planning to do all of Lucretius, trans, um, translate the whole of De Rerum Natura, um, which was not um, a major poem for the 17th century, um, for 17th century culture. It was Dryden is one of the people um, who was in a, in a minority in thinking it a great poem. And once he translated the first of the two selections um, in The Penguin, um, which is the one on death, or why one shouldn't fear of death, shouldn't fear death, which is probably the most famous um, section of De Rerum Natura, um, Dryden was accused of atheism for um, translating that fairly atheistical passage. Um, and the, um, so people saw that how much Dryden was getting out of it and how powerful he thought that was. Um, and obviously, I think it's obvious from Religio Laici that he's not an atheist. Um, but he's certainly open to affectively powerful thoughtfulness um, especially in poetry from all sorts of different points of view. And again, the idea in um, Religio Laici that we were looking at, um, and to some extent the idea in Absalom and Achitophel that we can see coming out in this, is that um, open-mindedness is for Dryden uh, probably the greatest civic <laughs> virtue. And uh, what he is always writing for is what he thinks open-mindedness is and what he's always writing against, um, sometimes with very great viciousness, um, viciousness that might seem close-minded. But what he's writing against is closed-mindedness. Um, let's go back, I guess, um, to... Um, Religio um, Laici, and just, um, I don't know that we necessarily have to look at any passages, but um, it's worth discussing um, what he has to, what his argument is. There actually is a passage I want to look at, but it's worth discussing um, what his argument about um, for and against deism is. And the argument for deism is that um, any smart person, he says. Um, Descartes is saying something similar just a little bit before this. But what um, Dryden and, and Descartes and many other people will say is that any smart person um, can see that there must be a god. Um, any smart person can see that um, the way things are set up in the world is such that um, there has to be a creator who made the world what it is. And then the question, though, that gets raised is, how much can you tell simply from your own experience? So the idea that there's a divinity, um, that there is a god, um, that's one idea, and an idea that, for reasons that Dryden is going to speculate on, um, the Greeks have and the Romans have and various other cultures and religions have. Um, the, the first question to be asked about that, though, is if you accept, which, of course, David Hume is not going to accept. He's going to be the greatest 
um, refuser of this idea. But if you accept um, the view that you can't really imagine that this world got here without a creator, um, what can you conclude about the creator? And so questions are, can you realize what Dryden takes to be true? Um, that, that um, can, you, can you realize um, that monotheism is right? That is, that the um, Hebrew version of God, whereby there is one God, um, in Christianity, God the Father, but, um, but the whole idea of monotheism, one God controlling the whole, creating and controlling the whole world, um, is that something that looking at the world would permit you to know? Or do you need supplementary information to know that? Um, so, the, so one question is the question of um, how much looking at the world um, can tell you about God. The second question, for, for Dryden it's a much more important question, is once you accept that there's a God, um, which you might get from observation, um, you can hypothetically, um, let's say that you can get it from observation, um, and you could also get from observation that God is good, um, then we have the problem which is, but we're not good. Um, we know that we're sinners. And no observation then, if you see from observation that there's a good God, and you also see from observation that human beings are not good um, the way God is, that, that human um, behavior is in many ways um, and perennially and historically barbarous and, and even murderous. What hope is there in a universe that seems just, but on which we are on the side of um, the unjust, those who ought to be punished? And it's there that Dryden says you really need Christianity um, not to feel despair about your own fate. Um, that without Christianity, um, without the idea of salvation, um, your fate is dreadful without the idea of some sort of salvation. Um, and that the idea of salvation is something that you can't come up through rational thought and philosophy. It might be that rational thought and philosophy gets you to the idea of God, but it doesn't get you to an idea of salvation. And it certainly doesn't get you to the Christian idea that God's greatness and generosity is such that he himself sends his son um, to tell us what we've done wrong, but also to um, absolve us from what we've done wrong by paying the penalty for what we've done wrong. And there he says, so that's in Religio Laici, that's his defense of, the, of why we need the Bible. That is why um, it is necessary for human religion, for true religion, um, for, the, for religion that is going to um, know um, the truth, both the moral truth about the human soul and its fate and the physical or cosmological truth about the origin of the universe, um, at least for the moral truth, 
about the soul and its fate. We need the Bible. But the problem is, and this is what we talked about, that the Bible is corrupt. I mean, that is to say the text is corrupt. Um, we can't, we have no guarantee that what the Bible says is right. So on the one hand, this is, this is the um, um, situation that the poem is answering. On the one hand, um, the Bible is unreliable. But on the other hand, we can't do without it. And it's that needle that Dryden is threading. It's, that, um, it, it's going between that Scylla and Charybdis. That it is between that Scylla and that Charybdis that Dryden is sailing. Um, and part of what we talked about is that the way he sails through it, or the way he goes through it, is to say, that um, while it's true that there is no reliable text, it's also true that you can't simply throw the whole thing out because you can't have 100% certainty about anything. That it's the nature, this is what we spent a lot of time on last class in talking about the hermeneutical, hermeneutical circle, but it's the nature of human understanding that as human beings, we learn things pretty well and we understand things pretty well. And although perfection eludes us, there isn't only a choice between extremes. It's not either we understand perfectly or we don't understand at all, but that it's in fact the nature of God's um, attitude towards us that we do our best where doing our best doesn't mean acting inflexibly or fanatically. Um, we do our best given the fact that we're fallen and um, mixed human beings, but we do our best, um, and doing our best is good enough. In um, psychoanalysis, um, there's a concept that D.W. Winnicott came up with, which is an extraordinarily important one um, for the practical purposes of parenting which is the concept of the good enough mother. Um, the good, what you want to be if you're a mother is not a perfect mother, but a good enough mother. Um, what you want to be if you're a parent is a good enough parent. For Dryden, what you want to be um, is a good enough worshiper or believer in God. And what you want is a good enough text of the Bible. Now, part of that anti-fanaticism um, is going to take the form of the question, who gets saved? And that's one of the issues that um, he talks about in Religio Laici, because according to the Athanasian Creed, um, the way it's usually understood, um, only those who are saved are those um, to whom um, Christianity has been revealed, which is part of the problem. Dryden has already said, um, we couldn't figure this out if we hadn't been told about it. Um, but what about all the people who haven't been told about it? Are they going to be damned by accident through the accident of history that they were in North America or in Africa or in New Zealand or some other place where um, the gospel hadn't been brought or, or that they lived before Christ? What is going to happen to them? And again, a fanatical view is they'll all be damned. Um, that only those, um, only those are saved who, um, who, who have been brought the word of Christ. 
Um, anyone who hasn't will be damned. There's some question about the Hebrews, um, that is the, the, um, the chosen people before Jesus came, and that's hotly debated in Christian theology. Um, but after the coming of Christ, only those who embrace Christianity can be saved. Um, and yet the world is full of people who don't know about Christ and about Christianity. Are they really going to be damned for that reason? Are, those, are, are the Greeks and the Romans going to be damned because they didn't know about Christianity? So Dryden obviously doesn't think so because that, again, is just the kind of fanaticism that he's against. But it's a hard, um, it's again a hard argument to make. Now, part of the argument is is um, at the very start of the poem, which is, um, is deism really something that human beings could come upon on their own or not? And one answer to that question is the idea of gods. Yes, humans could probably um, and might almost inevitably come upon the idea of gods by themselves. But the idea of a single god, um, there's nothing in nature which speaks for monotheism. Um, or at least there's nothing that clearly and irrefutably speaks for monotheism in nature. Um, in fact, you could almost say that that's um, really what troubles religious fundamentalists about Darwinism. Um, it's not the idea of um, evolution, but it's the kind of polytheism that you get in Darwin, which is that you have a competition among all forms of life rather than a harmony among all forms of life. So you know, just get rid of, of the fundamentalism and the idea that God just created everything the way it is. Um, the problem for a lot of people with Darwinism put more subtly is that um, you can't believe in nature with a capital N as a benign entity um, if you believe in Darwinian evolution, that um, there isn't nature with a capital N, even abstractly. But what there are are all sorts of different natures, um, human nature, wolf nature, ape nature, um, bacterium nature and so on and all those things are in conflict with each other and the ancient religious um, version of this is a kind of polytheism where, um, where different gods of different natural objects are in conflict with each other. Um, obviously Dryden doesn't know any of this but on the other hand um, if you read the Lucretius, you may be surprised by how much in Lucretius um, and how much in other um, parts of Dryden um, seem apt. Um, the part in Lucretius in the translation from Book 5 um, about um, whether children look like their mother or their father. Do people remember that? Um, and he actually talks about the genial atoms, some, some genial atoms of the race remain. Um, he's practically talking about genes. Um, that is about inherited characteristics that can go underground for generations and then return. Um, of course he doesn't have any Mendelian idea, um, but he does have an atomic idea. 
um, Lucretius has an atomic idea, and Dryden, understanding Lucretius, also has that atomic idea. Um, and the atomic idea is that things can be hidden but still passed along because they are discrete objects and then they can surface later. Um, so there are lots of things which are uncanny um, uh, foreshadowings of later science. Of course Dryden doesn't know the science and it's not that Dryden almost stumbled on it. He didn't. But the issues that are brought up by the science are issues that are brought up um, in similar moments in Dryden and in the Lucretius that he's translating. Um, and so what Dryden is essentially saying is if, as we know, there are lots of proto-monotheistic religions or um, impulses in ancient non-Hebrew religion, it's probably not the case that, this, that these came out by observation, but rather that there was a much more widespread revelation. That is, that it's not only Hebrews who were told about God and not only those they interacted with, um, but perhaps the entire world in ancient days were told about God, or at least after Noah, and that's his, that's his assumption that Noah's descendants, um, Noah knew about God, his descendants knew about God. The Bible is very clear um, that most of his descendants are not um, doomed or damned. Um, so they did know about God, and when you have Plato or Aristotle, for example, talking about um, single, a single God, a first mover in Aristotle, or just God in Plato, that's because they're descendants of Noah like everyone else. Um, and therefore, the Athanasian creed, which says you need to know about God, you need to have been told about him, is not disabling. Because in fact, all people on Earth have some vestige of the original divine revelation still being handed down from generation to generation. Um, and since all that we have are vestiges, that is, even the Bible, that even the New Testament that we now have is imperfect, we're talking about a difference of degree and not a difference of kind um, between what um, gets handed down um, to the Greeks or what gets handed down even to um, American, Native Americans, and what gets handed down um, officially through the church and through, through the um, um, councils of the church. So one possibility, and um, it's what he thinks is true, um, is that the revelation really did go to everyone. Another thing which is really important for him, though, is that the Athanasian Creed basically talks about people who reject knowledge that they are given. They're told the truth through the Bible, and they reject it. And for them, Dryden says, they really, he can understand why they wouldn't find salvation. But that the Athanasian Creed does not apply, or that part of it does not apply to those who are never told the truth 
to begin with. And um, a reason to, ex to believe and to accept that is, again, that the whole point of Christianity is to talk about God's infinite mercy. And again, there's no reason not to see that mercy is extending to those who don't know the story of Christ. So it's not that we know the story of Christ and therefore are saved. It's that we couldn't think of a way of being saved unless we heard the story of Christ. And then that tells us a way of being saved. But again, all of this allows for very broad categories of salvation in Dryden. Um, and one thing that it then does is it allows you freedom of conscience, which again for him is very, very important. Because if people are saved without knowing about Christ, because they're doing their best, then again, this becomes a poem which says, if you really are doing your best given what you know, if you do your best given what you know, that's all that can be asked of you, is for you to care and for you to try. And different people will know different things and do their best in different ways, and their idea of what doing their best is will be different. But doing your best is all that can be asked of you, whether you're a Christian, or um, a Maori, or um, a Native American, or whoever you are, what really counts is doing your best. Um, so just to um, look at one passage, then um, I want to see how, this, how a very similar idea, not, not on the surface similar, but actually a very similar idea, plays out in Aslam and Akitafel. But look at one passage in Religia Laici. Um, so uh, let's just start at, I guess, line 168. Um, so that what the Deus says at line 168 of Religio Deici, um, let me see if it's there. Uh, actually, um, I'll tell you what page it's on. Um, it's around page 178. Um, and you'll see that the marginal comment or gloss on that is objection of the deist. Um, so what Dryden has just said is what's in the Bible is enough, and it's good enough. It's a good enough Bible. The deist then says, but stay, the deist here will urge anew. No supernatural worship can be true, because a general law is that alone which must to all and everywhere be known. A style so large as not this book can claim, nor aught that bears revealed religion's name. So the law, a law that applies to all human beings has to be a law that all human beings know. Um, the uh, revealed religion is only revealed to some and not to all. The Bible is only known to some people and not to all. Um, I should tell you just, just um, one, two things, one for interest and one for... Um, definitional sake. Um, for interest, pretty much the origin of deism in England um, can be traced to Lord Herbert of Cherbury at the beginning of the 17th century. He was the poet George Herbert's elder brother. 
um, and George Herbert was um, became a, an Anglican priest, and um, it's one of the three or four um, uh, most important poets at the beginning of the 17th century. Um, anyhow, his elder brother was was a philosopher, also a crappy poet, but a pretty good philosopher, and he was the first person who's pushing deism in English, uh, in England. Um, the other thing is a definitional thing, which is um, that deism is is uh, essentially an idea of God that doesn't necessarily personalize him, although Dryden is kind of ignoring this fact. Um, there's a distinction sometimes made, and a valuable one, between deism and theism. And the distinction is that theism um, is a living God, that is a God who is conscious and active and intervening, whereas deism is the kind of thing you might um, get in Aristotle um, as a principle of goodness who actually um, does affect everything um, around, does affect and perhaps creates the whole universe, but not through an act of will, simply by being, such a God's existence is all that you need. Um, so deism um, doesn't necessarily go beyond the idea of the existence of God without personalizing that God in any way. Um, very few people would actually, if you understand deism that way, very few people um, could actually say they weren't deists. Um, most scientists are deists in that form. If you talk about the laws of nature or the laws of physics, um, you're using law in a kind of deistic um, form. They can't be broken, but not because anyone will be punished if they do break it. It's just that's how things are. And the fact that there is a way that things are and always are, in a sense, that's all you need for deism. Um, theism is things are that way because God decided to make them that way. So theism is the idea of a living God. And then if you have a living God, the question is, so how much character does he have? Um, how much, how personal a living God is that? Um, so that's just a terminological, um, a very quick terminological distinction. Um, Jefferson, you probably know, was famous, was famously a deist. And um, Jefferson actually published, or he didn't publish, he made for his own use, but you can now get it, something called Jefferson's Bible. Um, and what Jefferson's Bible is are those New Testament passages which basically don't say anything about Jesus being the son of God or being, um, being a supernatural figure. Um, so it's all the parts of the New Testament which for Jefferson are not mythological. Um, and that for him is what deism was. It's a really interesting book, Jefferson's Bible. Um, okay, but stay, he, but stay. The deist here will urge anew, no supernatural worship can be true. Because a general law is that alone which must to all and everywhere be known. A so large as not this book can claim, nor aught that bears revealed religion's name. Tis said, the sound of a Messiah's birth has gone through all the habitable earth. But still, that text must be confined alone to what was then inhabited and known. So um, it turns out, with the discovery of... Um, the new world, 
that um, the, the um, proclamation of Christ's birth was not known all over the world. That was false, historically. Um, any claim in the Bible that the whole world knew that the Messiah was born, that, that claim is not true, so the deist points out. That text must be confined alone to what was then inhabitable and known. And what was then inhabited and known, that is known to be inhabited. And what provision could from thence accrue to Indian souls and worlds discovered new? Now, do people know about Mormonism? Um, what the idea in Mormonism is? What is it? Um, I think there's this Richard something who discovered golden tablets in the middle of North America, mm -hmm. and somehow those were Jews. And something about Native Americans like sinning, and that's why their skin is red. <laughs> like, that the real um, saved people were in Jerusalem, or something crazy. Like, okay, so that, that actually, that after Christ died, he went to North America. Oh. And um, that the angel Moroni brought the gospel to okay. North America, so that um, the problem of what happens to people um, who just weren't present when this, um, when this, when the event took place, um, that is the event which is the birth of Christ, not the event that is the new TV show. Um, those who were not present then, what happens to them, and the way um, Mormonism solves that problem um, is to, is to um, have the same thing happen in North America. Um, it just happens, so after, after Jesus dies, um, he actually comes back and comes to North America, and there's a gospel here that Native Americans are given. And um, that's, uh, that's a, a separate thing. Um, and that's what the Book of Mormon describes, um, which is the additional book that's added. Um, but this is post-Dryden. Mormonism is a, is a 19th century phenomenon. Um, so um, Dryden is asking, and it's a, it's a real question. It's where, it's where missionary zeal comes from. The reason missionaries go spreading out around the world is to try to save as many people as possible who didn't know about any of this. But the deist says, and Dryden um, gives you their objection, what provision could from thence accrue to Indian souls and worlds discovered new? In other parts, it helps that ages past, the scriptures there were known and were embraced till Sin spread, spread once again the shades of night. What's that to these who never saw the light? So you can say, all right, you know, God talked to the Hebrews, and um, at first um, they did the right thing, but then they became pharisaical and corrupt. Um, they can be punished for that if that's what happens. Um, they had the revelation, and they spurned it. But that means nothing for Indian souls and worlds discovered new. And then Dryden answers that objection. Of all objections, this indeed is chief to startle reason, stagger frail belief. So notice that he says, yeah, this really would be a problem um, if it's the case that, um, that all these human beings, through no fault of their own, not through rejectionism, but simply because they had absolutely no opportunity, if it's, if, if it's the case that they will not be saved, that really will startle reason. 
It seems so unreasonable. It will stagger frail belief. And then he answers, we grant, tis true, that heaven from human sense has hid the secret paths of providence, but boundless wisdom, boundless mercy may find even for those bewildered souls away. So he says, we don't know why they weren't told the gospel, and we also don't know what God's ways really are. It's something that Luther had worried about. Um, he he's worried about the moment in Exodus where God hardens Pharaoh's heart, or I shouldn't say the moment, but the 10 moments in Exodus where, where Pharaoh says to Moses, you can go now, it's okay, you can go. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart and then punishes him again. And um, Luther says, God is making Pharaoh not let them go. Luther, by the way, takes that as the proof that we have no free will, that God decides that Pharaoh won't let the children of Israel go, and God then punishes Pharaoh for what he's decided Pharaoh will do. Um, that, for Luther, is a major, major issue. And Luther's answer to that problem is this shows that God is so much more amazing than we are because God is obviously just. This seems to us obviously unjust, Therefore, it's clear that we just don't have the brains to understand true justice. Um, so God is doing something. It seems wrong to us. It shows that, um, that we don't know what's right. Um, but Luther admits that he can't see why it's right. He just says it's not for us to try and figure out why it's right. Dryden says, you know, that's possible. He's not going to deny it. He says, I'm not so smart that I can say why God is doing what he's doing. But here's what I think. And what he thinks is um, that boundless wisdom and boundless mercy may find even for those bewildered souls a way. And bewildered here literally means stuck in the wilderness. That is not bewildered as an, oh no, I'm bewildered, what should I do? But those who are in the wild, in the wilderness, which is li the literal meaning of bewildered, um, lost in the wilderness. If from his nature foes may pity claim, much more may strangers who ne'er heard his name. And though no name be for salvation known, but that of his eternal sons alone, so the only name for salvation is the name of, of the Son of God, who knows how far transcending goodness can extend the merits of that Son to man. So again, notice the perfect Drydanian, Drydonic, what's the adjective? Drydonic. Do you know? What would, what would you write? I wouldn't. You just wouldn't? <laughs> okay. Um, given Dryden's um, um, beautiful use of balance, here the balance is essentially we grant that salvation only comes from the Son, and there's no other name for salvation, which seems to take everything away from those who don't know about him. But granting that the Son is unique in his amazingness, then why couldn't we say that his amazingness, whereby he saves us by imputing his own virtue to us, why can't he be amazing enough to do that for those who've never heard of him, if he's that amazing? So on the one hand, it looks like, yeah, it only comes from the Son of God, only from Jesus. 
But on the other hand, that's because Jesus is so amazing that he could save everyone on earth. So there again, you get, you get um, a contrast with a good outcome, which is what we've been looking at throughout in Dryden's form in the heroic couplet. Not only charity bids, but, sorry, um, what, uh, who knows how far transcending goodness can extend the merits of that son to man? Who knows what reasons may his mercy lead or ignorance invincible may plead? So who knows what, um, what rational reasons may cause him to use his mercy in this way with those other people? Or what reasons ignorance invincible, that is... Um, ignorance that couldn't have been overcome because they were there in North America, um, that they can plead for mercy and salvation. Not only charity bids hope the best, but more the great apostle has expressed, and now he's going to quote something from St. Paul, that if the Gentiles, whom no law inspired by nature did what was by law required, they who the written rule had never known, were to themselves both rule and law alone. To nature's plain indictment they shall plead, and by their conscience be condemned or freed. So Paul had said that those who weren't given the gospel were, as he put it, laws to themselves. Um, that's a phrase that we take to mean something bad, like he's a little terror, he's a law unto himself. But in St. Paul it was actually a good thing. Um, what it meant was people who were virtuous um, through their own conscience rather than um, because they read what the law said. So Paul says they can be saved. Um, well, if that's true, so can anyone who follows their own conscience. Most righteous doom because a rule revealed is none, not a rule at all, to those from whom it was concealed. Then those who followed reason's dictates right lived up and lifted high their natural Light with Socrates may see their maker's face while thousand rubric martyrs want a place. So he thinks Socrates will be saved despite not knowing um, the Christian religion because he followed reason's dictates and his own <clears throat> conscience. Um, so that's the argument that he's making. Um, the important thing, though, to see about this, and again, it's typical of Dryden, and it's something that um, if you're one type of critic, you would point out as part of um, English um, ethnocentricity and, and European and Christian cultural imperialism, is that while everyone might be saved, they get saved by the Christian God. And that the only people who know why they're saved are people like Dryden and those who he's discussing this issue with. That is, um, he's already said humans are going to fear that they won't be saved um, if they have a conception of God, which they might get by looking at nature. Um, they won't see any way that they could be saved. You need Christianity to know how you would be saved. Um, even those who don't know Christianity um, and have never heard of it might be saved, but, the own, but those who are in a position to know of the possibility of universal salvation, those are the Christians. Those are us. Um, so there is a privilege um, that goes to being a Christian, and in this case being a middle-of-the-road um, Anglican, 
um, and that privilege is to know how it is that God might save everyone. Um, you can say that Dryden's taking that position, and I think you'd be right to say it, that Dryden's taking that position um, is, is elitist and ethnocentric. Um, Dryden would say that his taking that position is showing both why it's good to know about religion and why it's okay if you don't know about religion. Um, why it's good to see that salvation is possible, but part of what's good about it is that you can see that it can go, that those who don't know that it's good to see that salvation is possible or who don't know that salvation is possible can still be saved. Um, and again, that's where, that's the typical place that Dryden wants to be. He wants to be in a capacious center of things, both in the center and able to um, extend um, a kind of um, perspective of benevolence extremely widely, um, a, a, but a perspective that he's at the very center of understanding, whereas those at the periphery might still be the objects of benevolence, but they wouldn't understand it as he does. Um, but that's what the middle way, that's what it means to be in the middle of things. Um, it's to accept all sorts of different sides, but, where, but being in the middle is still the privileged and central point in that acceptance of all sorts of different sides. So let's go back to Aflam and Akitophel. Um, and um, the um, accounts of monarchy in Aflam and Akitophel. So let's just go, uh, this is where we stop Last time, if you go to line 752 of Absalom and Achitophel, um, there we get a kind of, the poem itself um, attains a kind of prophetic strain, to quote Milton, um, where the poet, the speaker, Dryden, um, you can't quite say it's Dryden because the address is to Israel, not to England, um, but whatever Dryden's Hebrew name would be. Um, says, O oh, foolish Israel, never warned by ill, still the same bait and circumvented still. Did ever man forsake their present ease in midst of health, imagine a disease, take pains contingent mischiefs to foresee, make heirs for monarchs and for God decree. Um, so this is what um, people are always doing, but you guys do most of all. In the midst of health, you imagine disease. You take pains for contingent mischiefs. That is, you um, do actual things to prevent stuff that's not happening. Um, you cut the budget because you're afraid that the bond, the prices of um, bonds are going to go through the roof or because of inflation, even though there's no um, sense that that's happening. Um, what shall we think? Can people give away both for themselves and sons their native sway? So here's the real question now. Um, what can the people do about monarchy? If the monarch is essentially the creation of the people, which is what the Book of Judges say, says, and that's what Akitophel is pointing out, that the Book of Judges says that the, 
that Israel said, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And Samuel said, no, and I guess, the, sorry, not the book of Judges, the book of Samuel. Samuel said, no, you don't want a king. Kings are bad. The other nations have kings, you have the Lord. And the children of Israel said, um, tough, we want a king just like everybody else. They get to have a king, why don't we? Um, so God um, and uh, Samuel agree. And that for Dryden really is, and not only for Dryden, but that for Dryden really is a kind of, kind of biblical confirmation of what Hobbes said, which was that the king represents the people. Um, so now the question is, if that's true, if Hobbes is right, if Samuel is right, if what Achitophel says is right, that the, that the children of Israel deposed God in order to determine their own king, um, why can't they now decide who's going to be king next? Decide that David will no longer be king, or that at least David won't have the power that he had before to determine his own heir, that Charles II won't have the power to um, uh, or, or, well, the way Kittifel is putting it is that Charles II will have to do what the people want in determining who his heir will be. Um, so what shall we think is the question. Can people give away both for themselves and sons their native sway? The rhetorical question would be something like, no, democracy should always win out. Um, if they were to do that, then they are left defenseless to the sword of each unbounded, arbitrary lord. Um, so if people can give power away to the king, then any unbounded, arbitrary lord can do whatever they want to us. And laws are vain by which we write in joy. If kings unquestioned can those laws destroy. So if we, if the if human society gives away its power, then the very laws by which we are what we are um, no longer mean anything if kings can do whatever they want. Um, now, there's a complex argument that Dryden is making here, which is um, there are two possibilities of what kings are. One is that kings are whatever the people say they are. And the other is that kings are kings despite what the people want. And Dryden is kind of being a little bit um, uh, finessing that difference, or he's being a little bit tricky about that difference, but only a little bit. Um, yet if the crowd, he's still dealing with a real question, yet if the crowd be judge of fit and just, and kings are only officers in trust, then this resuming covenant was declared when kings were made, or is forever barred. So either kings rule the crowds, or kings are ruled by crowds. If the people made kings, then either they can unmake them whenever they want, and that's democracy, um, and uh, the, the more quickly you can call an election, the more democratic it is. Um, presidents would be a close modern example of this kind of kingship. Or people can't remove kings just because they want to. 
And the question is, if you have a monarch, what is the relation of the monarch to the people? That's been the question throughout Absalom and Achitophel. For kings were made for them, not they for kings. That's what Achitophel has, say, has said. Kings are made for us. We're not made to do what the kings want. So now the question is, so what kind of power do kings have? If the crowd be judge of fit and just, and kings are only officers in trust, then this resuming covenant was declared when kings were made or is forever barred. So now he's saying the question is, when kings were first made, did people always reserve the right to get rid of them? Or did they fail to reserve that right? If they fail to reserve that right, then once, once a king, always a king. And one of the things you are as king is the father or the ancestor or the determiner through genetics of who the next king is going to be. Um, so unless at the time that the first king was created, there was a covenant, a part of the law, a disclaimer, saying that kings could be removed whenever the people wanted, they just can't be. But that's a tricky situation. That is that kings represent the will of the people, and yet they can go against the will of the people. In American politics, that's how presidencies work. Um, the fact that the president has an approval rating of 40% and a disapproval rating of 47% doesn't mean that he's not still president. Um, there are what Bush called accountability moments, um, which there aren't for kings. But they're only moments. Most of the time is not an accountability moment. Um, the polls don't determine who's president except every four years. Um, the polls don't determine who's king, says Dryden, except at the very start of kingship. If those who gave the scepter could not tie by their own deed their own posterity, how then could Adam bind his future race? So here the idea is that those who gave the scepter, that is the people, gave the scepter to a king. And in doing that, they bound by their own deed, their own posterity. They bound those not yet born to obey kings till the end of time. And there's a big question, can what one generation does bind what another generation does. How, for example, this was a big question in the American Revolution, and it was a big question in the formation of the Constitution. How can, a revolu how can those who lead a revolution now say, we have freed ourselves from arbitrary laws, but now we're giving laws that have to be obeyed by people 100 years from now? How can they make that claim? And a whole lot of... Um, the early constitutional debates um, debated whether there should be a constitution at all or whether the constitution should have an expiration date, whether it shouldn't be the case that every 30 years the laws have to be revisited um, and maybe reformulated. How can um, people, I mean, it's still a question. It's a, it's a huge Second Amendment question. How can people who thought that the right to go around with muskets in 17... Um, 89, um, how can those people um, make it a requirement that people um, be able to go around with semi-automatics in 2010? Um, why should that law affect us? 
Um, that question is a question that goes way back. Laws are permanent or more or less permanent, but the people who make the laws um, are making them for people who don't even exist and yet somehow are supposed to make are supposed to be obeying these laws generations later. Um, that's a big that's a huge question. Um, again, David Hume, who is the great skeptic about all of these things, um, doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in an afterlife, um, doesn't believe in almost any piety, um, has an essay called Of Original Contract, where he says, what is this stuff, basically in Hobbes and in Locke, what's this stuff about a social contract? I didn't sign a social contract when I was born. I didn't say, sure, I accept. That, um, I, that I have to behave in certain ways and give up certain of my rights in order to have um, um, security. Um, it's true, perhaps, that, um, again, to go back to Hobbes, that the state of man in nature is, or the state of, of, of natural human beings is a war of everyone against everyone, and that people stopped um, fighting this war of everyone against everyone because they made a truce or a treaty or an agreement or a contract that they would give up their rights to hurt each other, which we all have a right to do. Um, they would give up that right um, to hurt each other um, in order to have um, freedom and domestic tranquility and security. Um, and sure, it's great that they signed that, and it makes a lot of sense, but I don't see where I signed it, and I don't see where it can be said um, that I am a party to this contract which was made before I was born. Um, same question comes up with immigration now. Um, that is, um, when, the, when people are deported who came to the U.S. at the age of one year old, um, you know that that's always the, the um, and rightly, the sob story in immigration debates, that there's, um, there's that kid at Harvard who um, wasn't let back into the U.S. from Mexico. He'd been living in the U.S. since he was a year old. Um, he was, he was um, you know, completely um, um, acculturated as American in every way, but it turns out he was born in Mexico and had missed his chance um, to become an American citizen. He tried to go back to Harvard um, and was arrested. And um, this, was a, this was a kid who was, who was, you know, he was like a junior at Harvard. Um, so this became, because it became a big news story, um, that was reversed. But those stories happen all the time. And so what's happening is that um, these are people who are living in the U.S. who didn't decide, didn't immigrate illegally, didn't decide to immigrate, didn't decide um, to, didn't sign anything. Um, but suddenly, through something that they had nothing to do with, they, are, they find themselves in, in strange legal positions. So this issue, um, laws and contracts made for you before you even existed, that's a perennial issue in political life, in legal life. And Dryden is answering it here by saying, look, Adam ate the apple, and Eve ate the apple. He only talks about Adam. Um, they ate the apple, and that their sin is something that we are still expiating. Um, Adam bound um, all of us to forfeit. Um, Adam signed away our rights forever. So how then? So um, unless it was the nature of human society that people could 
by their own deed, bind their own posterity, could tie their posterity. Unless it's the nature of how human societies and human laws work, that laws can be made and agreed to that people not yet born will have to obey as though they too agreed to them, then Adam's sin could have nothing to do with us. Or how could heavenly justice damn us all who ne'er consented to our father's fall? We didn't say he should eat the apple, and yet we're damned. Then kings, if that were the case, if, um, if everything had to be done anew every time, then kings are slaves to those whom they command, and tenants to their people's pleasures stand. Add that the power, and now he's going to argue some more, add that the power for property allowed is mischievously seated in the crowd. So if that's so, um, then, then all that power is seated in the crowd, and, there's, and the very idea of property and inheritance goes away if you don't accept um, that contracts and laws bind the future people. For who can be secure of private right if sovereign sway may be dissolved by might? Um, how can you be sure that the house you inherited will be yours if the people suddenly decide, um, no, um, they didn't agree to that. That when your um, grandmother bought that house, people now alive um, don't recognize that purchase um, because they didn't agree to um, accept a law by which signing a deed and accepting it um, made any sense. Nor is the people's judgment always true. Here's another problem. People could be wrong, nor is the people's judgment always true. The most may err as gross, the most may err as grossly as the few. And faultless kings run down by common cry for vice, oppression, and for tyranny. What standard is there in a fickle route which flowing to the mark runs faster out? So you know, the people are always changing their minds too. Democracy is terrible. Nor only crowds, but Sanhedrins may be infected with this public lunacy. Sanhedrins here means parliament. Um, nor only crowds, but Sanhedrins, but Sanhedrins may be infected with this public lunacy and share the madness of rebellious times to murder monarchs for imagined crimes. Um, think of impeaching, think of reasons for impeaching presidents. Um, if they may give and take whene'er they please, not kings alone, the godheads, images, but government itself at length must fall to nature's state, where all have right to all. So that's the idea that there are no limits to rights in nature's state, including the right to kill anyone you want. Um, that's what will happen if you don't accept the power of contracts made even before your birth, where law, where the system of laws is such a contract. Um, well, by that contract, the king is the king. Let's go forward now to what David has to say. Um, and this is basically the end of the poem, uh, line 939. Um, the godlike David spoke with awful fear his train, their maker in their master here. So they hear God because he's godlike in David. 
Thus long have I, by native mercy, swayed, my wrongs dissembled, my revenge delayed, so willing to forgive the offending age, so much the father did the king assuage. So um, again, you get that balance and that doubling, and he said, I prefer to be a father than a king. But now, so far, my clemency they slight, the offenders question my forgiving right. That is, now they think I don't even have the right to forgive. That one was made for many, they contend. So they accept, they claim, that the king was made in order to serve the many. The reason a king exists is for the benefit of the many. That one was made for many, they contend. And David agrees to that. But he says, but what was this one made to do? To rule. But tis to rule, for that's a monarch's end. So the whole point, it's true that monarchs stand for and represent the people. But the whole point is they stand for and represent the people as monarchs. They are the ones who make sure that things run well. That's a monarch's end. They call my tenderness of blood my fear, though, many though manly tempers can the longest bear. Yet since they will divert my native course, it's time to show I am not good by force. Those heaped affronts that haughty subjects bring are burdens for a camel, not a king. I'm not going to take any more of their affronts to me. Kings, now again, he tells you what kings are. Kings are the public pillars of the state, born to sustain and prop the nation's weight. So I do accept burdens, but it's the burden of the nation, not the burden of these affronts. If my young Samson, that is Absalom, will pretend a call to shake the column, let him share the fall. If he's against kingship, let him fall also. He shouldn't think he's good. He can't both be against kingship and think to inherit the kingship from me. Like Samson, he should die in the general collapse of the um, palace that he's bringing down. Um, but oh, that yet he would repent and live. How easy it is for parents to forgive. So again, notice that distinction between parent and king. And he's saying, I would much rather be treated as a parent than as a king. How easy it is for parents to forgive. With how few tears a pardon might be won from nature, pleading for a darling son, poor pitied youth by my paternal care, raised up to all the height his frame could bear. Had God ordained his fate for empire born, he would have given his soul another turn. Um, if he really should be king, he wouldn't be acting this way. But he was gulled with a patriot's name, and this would be patriot in the same way that the left um, scorns the so-called patriots now. That is, those who claim they're on the side of the nation but are just um, anarchists. Gulled with a patriot's name whose modern sense is one that would by law supplant his prince. So the modern definition of patriotism is those who are trying to get rid of kings. The people's brave, the politician's tool, never was patriot yet but was a fool. Whence comes it that religion and the laws should more be Absalom's than David's cause? Um, why should Absalom think that he's the person upholding religion and the laws? I am too. His old instructor, ere he lost his place, was never thought endued with so much grace. Good heavens, 
How faction can a patriot paint? My rebel ever grows, my people's saint. Would they impose an ear upon the throne? Let Sanhedrins be taught to give their own. A king's at least a part of government, and mine is requisite as their consent. So, so um, what he's saying here, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's, it's worth looking at a little bit more. But essentially what he's saying here is that being king and the center of things is also simply being a part of a vast system. It's being a part of it, the center of it, but the center for David and for Dryden is to be a part and not a pinnacle, a part that makes the whole thing work, but not the reason that the whole thing exists. So being a king is serving, is doing a service to everyone else. Um, what he says about democracy at um, line nine, start at line 991, um, the law shall still direct my peaceful sway and the same law teach rebels to obey. So I as king and the rebels as rebels, we should listen to the same law. I don't control the law, the law controls me. I am king by law, not by popular right, but by law. Um, votes shall no more established power control such votes as make a part exceed the whole. So that's actually the most, in a way, that's the political, as far as political philosophy goes, that's the shrewdest and, and deepest thing that he's saying. He's saying that it's the nature of a king to care about everyone and to take care for everyone. It's the nature of democracy to, to do what the majority wants but not what everyone wants. So in a democracy, the majority is only a part, it may be the biggest part, but only a part of society. But if the, demo but if the majority rules, then the majority has more power than all of society put together. And in that sense, the part exceeds the whole. The majority determines what the whole will do. And that is what has come to be called the tyranny of the majority um, in political theory, that the majority can be tyrants too. And what David here is saying is kings are not tyrants, at least English kings are not tyrants, but majorities can be tyrants. If you don't want a tyrant, then don't go for democracy. That's where tyranny may come from, is from democracy. Um, that's what Shaftesbury would be in controlling um, Monmouth. He would be the tyrant by doing that. Um, and that's what has to be um, resisted. Um, and then uh, just to notice the end of his speech, uh, lawful power is still superior found, and then notice that how it, how it concludes uh, with the Alexandrine, with the long line, when long driven back, at length it stands its ground. And that at length is um, what the line is enacting. 
you just get the long, conclusive line. And the word length is what the line is. It's a line of length, David pronouncing for himself. Um, anyhow, the, the point is that it's not, it's, if you're interested in the history, it's interesting historically. But if you're interested in um, the political ideas in the poem, um, it's probably among the best possible arguments um, that can be made on behalf of this position, which is a position that's basically anathema to us and should be anathema to us. But it's the best possible defense of monarchy that can be made. Um, monarchy as a legal and orderly and benign institution against the um, anarchy or tyranny that democracy um, can, can um, bring, in it, bring with it. And um, as I say, that's of a piece with Dryden's views in general um, and with the vast range and variety of Dryden's poetry and um, um, the mode and style and content and um, diction of his poetry, as well as with um, his biography, his religious views. And, um, and I think most important for us, and this is one reason that um, uh, to read the Lucretius, I mean, it's great. I hope you found that the translations of Lucretius were great. I hope you found the translations of Horace were great, um, vastly different from Lucretius. Um, but it's that Dryden is also um, a complete pluralist in the kind of poetry he likes. That is, all it has to be is good. He doesn't have to agree with it. Um, it doesn't have to be one kind of poetry rather than another. Lucretius is great, and it's, it's an important, I think it's important for us reading Dryden because very few people actually agree with Dryden anymore. Um, but it's still what you can appreciate about Dryden is what Dryden appreciates about Lucretius, which is that you have really um, powerful thinking um, where a lot of the power is, is the power of poetic form um, and of poetic um, uh, reasoning and of poetic discourse, um, which is worth thinking through. Whether you agree with it or not, it's worth thinking through. Um, and a whole lot of what Dryden will agree with is Lucretius' view of what human life is like. Um, a whole lot of what he'll disagree with is um, Lucretius's atheism. Um, but he still, if, all, if the only thing we had by Dryden were his translations of Lucretius, we'd find them very convincing, um, despite the fact that Dryden doesn't agree with them. Um, and even more than this, I think the translations of Horace um, and Horace's view of human experience are um, really, really important for understanding Dryden's view of what poetry is and what poetry makes possible. Um, all right, that was, uh, that was a lot. Not as much as I wanted to say, but a lot. Um, and so do the reading. If you um, Did everyone get a chance to read the Lucretius for today? Um, so you can see that we're trending back towards obscenity, um, at least in the book five, uh, the translations from book five of Lucretius. Um, in some ways, we'll continue that trend, and certainly two weeks from now when we do Rochester, we'll be way back there. Um, but 
read what I mentioned um, and have an easy fast if you're fasting, and I will see you next week.